0: Is anyone else here a fan of the author C.S. Lewis? Anyone else like him? He's written some amazing stuff, right? We've got Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, uh, The Screwtape Letters, uh, The Great Divorce. He's written some amazing and powerful books that Christians have been encouraged by for decades now. Um, But he wrote a a book that's less well-known called Letters to Malcolm, and there was specifically a quote from this book that that jumped out at me the first time I ever read it, and it's just stuck with me for many, many years at this point. I want to share this quote with you this morning. C.S. Lewis writes this. It takes all sorts to make a world or a church. In fact, this may even be truer of a church. If grace perfects nature, it must expand all our natures into the full richness of the diversity which God intended when He made them. And heaven will display far more variety than hell. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a great sentiment? Which just makes it all the worse that it's not true. <laughs> right? It's, it's not true. And we all know this. When you look at this verse, this is not reality. Heaven does not have more variety than hell. Heaven is all the same. Heaven is people all dressed in white robes, singing the same songs of praise to God for eternity. Hell is where the party is, right? I mean, that's what all the songs say, and I think it's what we think, Not just about heaven and hell, but I think just even about the spiritual life in general. That the the holier you are, the more the same you are. It's only the broken and the dysfunctional people that have variety and differences, right? In fact, if I'm going to look at a quote that is more accurate to reality, I'm going to go to a different Christian author, uh, the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. And he says this in the opening lines of Anna Karenina, "...all happy families are alike." It's each unhappy family that is unhappy in its own unique way, right? So so the more happy you are, the more blessed you are, the more spiritual you are, the more holy you are, the more the same you become. It's only the people who are sad and miserable that have uniqueness in their misery. This tracks much more for what I've experienced of the world and how I picture the Christian life, right? Because the more holy you are, the more like everyone else you start to be. We have this cookie-cutter image of what a good Christian is supposed to be and look like. And I know that plagues us just because even in our own denomination, we are 98% Caucasian in our denomination. We don't have a lot of diversity and variety just in the ethnic realm. But I also know that because of the way we react to the differences even in communities of faith. When someone does something different than us uh, it, it rubs us the wrong way. It's weird. And there's one uh, particular story that I love. Uh, it's from Christian writer Reggie McNeil. And he shares this um, anecdote of these Christian missionaries to the Native American tribes in our country. And they had a very successful mission, and they would converted whole tribes to Christianity. And they've been living uh, and doing worship and life with their new Christian brothers and sisters amongst the Native Americans. Uh, and then after a few years, uh, one of their converts came to them. And he kind of confessed very shamefacedly, and and he came to these missionaries and he said, you got to know, I I really miss the spiritual walks, the the, the spirit walks that we go on in my culture. Uh, And so I've been doing them again. But don't worry, I'm not going on a spirit walk with my spirit guide, Brother Wolf, anymore because I'm a Christian now. So now I do my spirit walks with Jesus as my spirit guide. Now, how does that make you feel to hear that story? It certainly perplexed the Christian missionaries, right? Because there's this idea that, whoa, whoa, whoa you know, these were your kind of pagan practices. But once you accept Jesus into your life, you need to leave those pagan cultural practices behind. There's no room for that in the holy life. Which is ironic coming from people who still to this day put up Germanic tribal evergreen trees to celebrate the birth of their Savior every year. Think about it. It's what we're doing or think about even uh, Dion Garrett shared a few weeks ago about one particular marriage that he knows of where the, the husband built his own separate apartment in the basement of the house and, and they lived separately. And how many of us in that moment went, oh, that, there's not something good going on in that marriage? Right, because a holy marriage is going to look the same way, with a husband who confidently leads and, and a wife uh, who is submissive and uh, and a very you know active and healthy and normal life of intimacy. And I mean, there's there's these pictures of what marriage is supposed to be, what um, and even the fact that we're supposed to be married in the first place. And if someone deviates from that, there must be something wrong, because there's only one right way to follow God to be a holy spiritual person. There's no variety in spiritual growth. There's no variety in faith. The diversity and the variety is all in the brokenness and in the sin. And I think there's a reason we think that. And and it comes honestly. We come by it, I think, from Scripture. There's one particular passage, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, where Paul is writing to the believers and he says, Now we all, all of us who have been saved through the grace of Jesus Christ who now with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory in our lives, we are now all being transformed into his image. Right? This is the goal. The goal of, of the Christian life is that, that more and more, every step we take, every, every new path on the journey, every new step on the journey is, is us being more conformed, transformed into the image of Jesus. And I think this is right, and I think this is true. However... I think that we have understood this verse in a wrong and unhelpful way. So let me unpack this a little bit for you this morning. So here's what I think we think. We think there's this image of Jesus Christ, right? So here's, here's Jesus. This is the image. This is the, the perfect human being, the way we were supposed to be, right? And so that's what Jesus looks like. But unfortunately, I don't look like this. I look like this, all right? This is me. And we can see how I'm still vaguely human-shaped. You know, I, I'm close, but now sin has corrupted me, and sin has, uh, has added all these cancerous, tumorous lesions on me, and, and now there's all these things on me that don't look like the image of Christ. And so I need to, like, trim these off or, or, or sand these down or file them away, you know, and get rid of all these things that keep me from being conformed to this image of Christ. This is how I've always thought about my own faith journey. It's how I've always thought about discipleship and growth and holiness. That holiness is getting rid of all this junk so that I can look more like Jesus. Anyone else? Does this match how you've thought about this? Here are some problems that I've experienced by thinking about the image of Christ and my own self this way. Here's a few, there's a few shortcomings all right, first is that if this is the model, this is the way we think about it, then spiritual growth actually becomes a lessening of who you are. Right? Did you see that? That, that all these things that make me unique and different are the things that I've got to get less of. I've got to get rid of these things in my life. And so instead of growth being something that makes me bigger, it's actually something that makes me less. And that doesn't sound like growth. Is there any wonder that that doesn't sound appealing to people when they think that, oh, spiritual growth is you just get stopping doing things, right? Especially in, in some cultural Christian traditions, spiritual growth is stop smoking, stop drinking, stop having sex, stop doing all these things. That doesn't sound like growth. That sounds like being less. Not only that, I, I think it's even more damaging because, in, according to this picture, anything that's uniquely you must therefore be bad. Right, all these things that I have, they they don't match Jesus, so therefore they must be bad. Things. And we see that play out in so many ways. I really like playing poker personally, uh, but there's no poker in heaven. So that's something I'm going to have to get rid of, right? The holier I get, the less I'm going to need or want to play poker because I need to start training myself to live this very conformative, homogeneous life in heaven. You know, or, or I've known people that um, they were really into Harley uh, Davidson motorcycles and they love their motorcycle and they were in biker gangs and they had community and fellowship and then they got saved and they're like, well, shoot, now I kind of can't keep that uh, unless maybe I can baptize it somehow. And now we'll be bikers for Jesus and that'll make it okay somehow because there's this idea that the desires and the passions that we have are ultimately wrong Uh, and and they come from the corruption of sin and so we therefore have got to get rid of these passions, desires, joys, delights, the things that we uniquely find uh, appealing because of our nature. They must be bad. But then ultimately, the reason this is so, I think, damaging and wrong is that it ultimately makes God seem petty and small. Right? Because if I've got all of these unique experiences and, and this wide array of possibilities before me, the world is my oyster and I can do all of these amazing things and God doesn't want me to do any of them. Because God wants me to just sit and re- read the Bible and sing some songs and pray. And that's the only holy and healthy thing that I can do. Boy, that God must be pretty petty. Must be pretty small. And is it any wonder that if Christians believe this, I certainly have spent most of my life operating under some of these assumptions, is it any wonder that people are leaving this version of the faith? Is it any wonder that the culture looks at us and says, that's not anything I want? Why would I want uh, to to, to become less than who I am? Why would I want to worship a God who sure seems smaller than, than what the world is offering me? None of this makes sense. Why are any of us here still if, if this is what the, what we're operating under? And I think that's where so much of the guilt and shame of Christian life has come from, from this wrong assumption. But I wouldn't give you a wrong assumption if I didn't also have an alternative visual. And so this is what I've decided I think is more accurate to the spirit and intent of Second Corinthians 3 and more about the life that God wants us to live. See, instead of sin being additive, I think sin is actually subtractive. See, when we think that sin adds these things, these passions and desires, it's actually giving sin too much credit in our life. I want to remind you, sin never created anything. God is the creator of all things, all desires, all passions. God is the one that gave them to us. And sin never came up with a desire that God hadn't originally given us. All it did was taint and twist the desires that we already had. See, sin takes away. It doesn't add anything new. And so, in fact, it leaves us with these gaping holes, these wounds in ourselves. And the spiritual life is not actually becoming less. It's growing back the areas that have been taken away from us through sin. It's filling in these holes uh, through what God has to offer us instead. This tracks much more consistently with what the Bible describes the power of sin in our life. But not only that, I think we can go even a step further than this. What makes us think that we are the same size as God? Right? What if, in fact, our, our life and our spiritual journey is this, that we are this, and the image of Christ is so much bigger than anything we could have ever imagined. And in fact, we could spend our entire lives growing and filling out and becoming more healthy and holy versions of ourselves. And we would never begin to approach the fullness and the largeness of who Christ is and the image that he is holding out for us to be transformed into. And so in fact, we're like deeply inside this image of Christ right now already. This is you, this is me. We are in Christ. This is what the scripture tells us. And we are just expanding, but we don't have to expand into the fullness of Christ we just have to expand into one piece because we're this tiny little thing. And so even the, the health, the holiest, the greatest saint you've ever heard of or known only ever achieved one tiny portion of the image of Christ that God designed them for. And so my being a transformed person, my being a holy person doesn't look like me having to represent or fulfill the fullness of Christ's image. You know what? I just need to be in the foot And and my growth is going to be me looking even more perfectly like the foot of Christ. And in fact, that's all of us are going into different areas, right? So all of us that are sitting here in the pews or watching online, we're all here. We're all inside this image of Christ. And the best thing that we will ever hope to achieve is that one day I will more accurately, more fully be Christ's hand or Christ's foot or Christ's earlobe, whatever that is there, Right? And that would sound so ridiculous and so silly, and I would be too embarrassed to even stand up here and say this to you if it weren't for the fact that this is also biblical. <laughs> Some of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, that the human body has many parts, but the many parts make one whole body. And so it is with the body of Christ. That we were never designed to be the entirety of the body of Christ in one individual being. We were designed to make up the parts of the body of Christ. And in fact, each and every one of us is a foot, a hand, an arm, an ear, whatever it might be. We make up the body of Christ. And for those of us that know this verse already that have heard it before, I think we too quickly have pigeonholed this and said, well, what this means is we just need different tasks. We need some people to watch the kids so we can have children's ministry. We need some people to cook the food so we can have potlucks. We need some people to have beautiful voices so they can sing and lead us uh, in singing praises to God. And we, we, we act like the way we make up the body of Christ is by doing different things. But what if we make up the body of Christ by being different from each other? And so, in fact, I need your marriage to look different from my marriage because you have a foot marriage and I have a hand marriage. And so they're going to look like different ways. Or maybe I need you to worship differently than the way I worship because it's only in the variety of worship that God is truly and completely praised. Maybe we need both social justice warriors and prayer warriors. And one of them is not wrong for being naturally drawn towards the other. It's that both of them are living out the fullest expressions of God's design for them. Maybe this is the picture. And maybe this is how someone like C.S. Lewis can so blithely say that heaven will have more variety than hell because heaven will be made up of all of the different body parts of Christ. And as different as a hand looks from a foot, looks from an ear, is how different, holy, healthy, faithful people can look from each other. See, with this understanding, God is bigger than we could imagine. And we, in our, in our following of him and being faithful to him, will expand into such unique and different ways. And it's what the world needs. It's what the body of Christ needs. And it will more accurately reflect the true, full image of Christ. I think everybody needs to shift their thinking on this point. I think everybody needs to to get away from this cookie-cutter mentality that it's all about trimming off the edges and making us look the same and get to this idea that the design of God from the beginning for each of us is different. I think we all need that. But I think those who are on the path of adventure need to hear that even more than most, and this is where we're spending our time this morning. We're going to be talking about the people on the path of adventure, and these people, if you you know them, they are some of the most delightful, uh, breath of fresh air, warm-hearted, joy-filled people that are ever going to be in your life. Uh, People on the path of adventure are are pretty uh, amazing uh, and good people to have as part of this complete body of Christ, and I happen to know that very personally and deeply uh, because I I lucked out and happened to marry one of these people on the path of adventure. Uh, some of you know my wife, uh, Mia Moss. Her uh, full name is Melanie, but her nickname's Mia. And, um, and so she lives the path of adventure unlike anyone I know. And so I want to describe her to you tonight, uh, today and, uh, and see whether you recognize either yourself or some of the people in your own life. You see, people on the path of adventure, they have a natural charisma and confidence uh, these are the people their, their charisma is so huge that they, if they 're in a crowd or in a room, you notice them first and not because of anything they 're trying to do it 's not forced uh, or, or uh, artificial like sometimes people on the path of accomplishment are. These people are just so naturally charismatic that there 's just a light that draws people towards them. Uh, for me, my wife and I, we actually met uh, we were in the same youth group uh, in church, and she was a sophomore in high school the first time we met and uh, and already we were in a youth group with sixty, seventy kids in it, and she stuck out. Like you, you, you looked at her and you just thought, "This is someone who is marked for something different and special and great." Uh, she was just that part of a room, and we ended up being friends for a very long time. We were friends for six, seven years, uh, and and you know just good friends and acquaintances and you know all sorts of things. And then there came this moment, like seven years after uh, we had first gotten to know each other. And we'd been at a group function, you know, one we of our church thing, and, uh, and we were kind of all leaving, and everyone was heading to their separate cars, and, and Mia and I were just kind of lingering in the parking lot, and she kind of cut me off mid-sentence at one point, And she said, you know, Doug, I know that you think of me as a friend, but I'm telling you that you shouldn't. You should date me. And if you date me, you're going to marry me. And if you marry me, we are going to have an epic life together. See, these people are confident. <laughs> Right and, and so and she um, you know so she persuaded me and she's been regretting that ever since that day. See because these people they have natural charisma confidence not only that they um, they're perpetually open to new experiences ideas and relationships and this has marked our last twelve years of life together. She's constantly open to new things which early on was a little frustrating for me because there there was all there was never complacency there was never stability or settling down because she was always thinking about the new best. Thing uh, it's, it's been really fun to get to watch and, and witness myself because she is truly this way. She's every, wired for new things. It got to the point where, um, when deciding if one of us was going to run to the grocery store, I would be the one that would always go because if she went, it would take her an hour. It would, for, that would take me fifteen minutes. But the reason was because she could not go to the grocery store without making friends with somebody there and ending up having like a deep, powerful, transformative conversation with them in the produce aisle. Uh, and every time she went, she'd come back and say, "I met the greatest." person today, and we had so much fun, and I got their you know, number, and we're going to you know, be Facebook friends now, and, and all these things, and because she was always looking for that. She was always excited to meet new people, make new friends. Not just that, but like new experiences. Uh, she has gotten, uh, if we ever go six months that my wife doesn't have a new hobby, I will be worried that there's something seriously wrong with her, and that she's dying or something. Like she's always exploring new things, and what's uh, even more incredible, and then finds out that she's good at them. Uh, about a year ago, she decided to paint a dresser on a whim, and, and she parlayed that into an actual re- decent uh, business where she restores furniture for other people and makes them look vintage and, and antique. And with no training, no background, she just was ready to pick up a new hobby. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, she had an opportunity, a work opportunity, she needed to take pictures of food. So she did, and she takes amazing pictures of food. Like, who knew uh, that my wife would do that? But, but this, it comes from this mindset that people on this path, they're always looking for the new experience, a new idea, a new relationship. Not only that, uh, people on this path can always find a good reason to justify anything they might want to do. These people are in the head triad of the nine paths, which means they're thoughtful, they're analytical, they're intellectual, uh, and so they don't do these things on a whim. They're not just, uh, you know, flipperty gibbets who kind of run at the next thing. They think about things very carefully. And so then when they do uh, have a new experience, a new idea, a new thing, they can always find a way uh, to justify it. And I have been on the receiving end of this more times than I can count. Uh, you do not want to ever get in an argument or a conflict with someone on the path of adventure because they will win because they've thought about it longer than you have and they are going to find a way to justify. Most recently, uh, some of you know, for example, that we own uh, a dog. Uh, And in fact, that's partly the fault of some of you that are here in this congregation because I never wanted a dog uh, at all. But my wife and this church prevailed and so we now own a dog. But if if there's one thing I don't want even more than one dog, guess what that is? I sure don't want two dogs. But lately, our dog has been depressed. And we leave for the day and we come back and he's chewed up our shoes or our kids' toys. And my wife turns to me and she says, Doug, it's cause he's lonely. And if he had a little companion, you know, kind of a pet, four hour pet, he wouldn't chew up your shoes anymore. And I find myself against all of my proclivities saying, I guess you're right. I guess we need two dogs. And so we got two dogs. And I hate it. <laughs> but who's going to win, right? Like this is, this is how these people are. They're, they're so persuasive, uh, and, which means that they're great marketers and communicators because they're, they're able to talk anyone uh, into anything uh, as long as they themselves believe in it themselves. Like, they won't be hypocrites, but they, they can talk a good game. Uh, and in addition... Uh, these people love having choices, but they hate to be limited. So this is all part of that new experiences, new adventures. You know, there's all, loving the idea that, that the world is their oyster and they could do anything. But the worst thing in the world is to say them, but now you have to pick one thing. Uh, it's interesting to think about how, how different parts of life play out depending on where you are on the different paths. Uh, for example, take the concept of marriage. See, for de- depending on which path you are, marriage means different things, right? If you're, if you're a path of service, uh, then marriage is a chance to, to get to serve someone for, for the rest of your life and, and find mutual connection through that. Or if you're a path of accomplishment, then marriage is a status symbol and a way to show that you've achieved something. Or if you're a path of integrity, marriage is a way to show that you're just doing the right thing because it's the right way to live. All these different paths have all these different reasons for enjoying marriage. For a path of adventure, marriage is death, Right, Marriage is saying in this moment, all the other relationships I could have had, I won't have. And, and marriage becomes this limiting of choices. I, on a lighter note, I have a, a friend who's on the path of adventure who, as I understand it, has not finished a book uh, in any of his adult life. He's read lots of books. He's started many books. But in this moment of reading a book, the, the, the idea, the drudgery of finishing this one book compared to the limitless books that are out there that I could be reading right now, means that this person never makes it through, gets a couple chapters in and then casts it aside because that new book is always more appealing than the one that they're limited and forced to choose. But again, that's all just part of them having this outlook and this mindset that's open for adventure, that's open for all these fun new experiences. And again, if you are recognizing yourself or recognizing someone that you know, you know that these people truly are delightful and fun to have in your life. But for all that someone on this path might not want to admit it, it can't be all fun and games all the time. Something has to go. There has to be some cost to pay to live this way. And it manifests in maybe what might be some surprising ways for you. See, if you're a person on the path of adventure, see, people here, they also um, are so future-oriented that it's actually difficult for them to be present present. And again, future-oriented, that sounds like a great thing, and that's what makes them accomplish so many good things, but it means that they actually lose the present. They're so excited about the ways that the house could be if we just fix it up and we we do this project and that task, and and we're going to make this house look amazing, and and they're unable to sit and say, but the house is nice now as it is. Or they're so excited about watching the kids grow up and say, oh, I can't wait to see what they're going to do, and they're going to do this and have this adventure and do this thing, and they miss the moment of where their kids are right now. Our culture as a whole really struggles with FOMO, if you've heard of this, you know, the fear of missing out. But no one struggles with it more than people on this path because there's always this idea that there's something better out there. And it means that they miss the blessings and the goodness that are right here, right now. Not only that, they, they hate being limited so much that, that if they ever do feel trapped or stuck, they will lash out against the constraints that they perceive around them. It can be hard uh, to work with people on the path of adventure because if they feel like they're being uh, controlled by their boss or being micromanaged, uh, they will run. They will quit the job rather than stay working somewhere where they feel trapped or stuck. Or this happens even in personal relationships. See, people on this path, they make new friends so easily. But there comes this moment in any relationship where the burden of the relationship puts something on you, where your friend needs you to show up for them in a certain way or needs you to do something that's against uh, your desires, or or there's a painful moment that they need you to live in the pain uh, so that you can push through it. And it's so hard for people on the path of venture to actually stay in those relationships because it feels so trapping that they will just jettison it. And they'd rather make a new friend than push through the stuff with the old friend. Or, or they'd rather uh, explore opportunities in work or marriage or relationships rather than do the hard work that is required to, to deepen and grow in a relationship because constraints are so troubling to these people because ultimately what drives all of this is this thing, is that people on the path of venture reflexively avoid pain at almost any cost. And again, here's the thing. If you're on this path, if you're relating to this personally, uh, this is smart. This is shrewd. Of course you avoid pain. That's what you should do. But, but these people, it's so reflexive. They don't even know they're doing it because they're so quick and they're so able to spin everything into a good opportunity that they don't actually do the work of facing the pain directly. And they don't even know that they're doing it. But as a result, they're, they're keeping their relationships, they're keeping their opportunities, they're keeping even their joy at a perpetual surface level because pain is the path to go deep and they won't go there if they're not aware. Because in fact, many of them won't even know that's what they're doing. They have no idea that they're avoiding pain at any cost because they're just spinning this amazing, joyful, energetic, charismatic life and they don't know that that's what's going on under the surface. But what they do know is that they don't want any part in a church or a religion that says that the answer to life is becoming less than what you are. They don't want to be part of a community that says there's one right way to be holy and this is our opinion. You need to look this one constrained, limited way. They'll turn their tails and run. They don't want any part in a God who seems petty and small and stern and restrictive, because why would they worship someone who's less interesting than themselves? I wouldn't. And so if you have experienced that, whether you're on this path or not, if you've been burned by a church that that was saying that the rules and the restrictions were the things that mattered about God, if you think, if you came from a culture or tradition that says God is small let me reacquaint you today with what Jesus Christ actually said about himself and the truth about God's nature, who he is and what he wants for us. We go to John 10. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the time, the people that have the, the ownership over the faith and what holiness should look like. And this is what he says to them. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief And a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice, and they come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out of the fold. See, Jesus in this moment is contrasting two voices there's the voice of the thief and the voice of the shepherd. And the voice of the thief is the one that limits. The voice of the sheep is these religious leaders who said, no, 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 here's the right way to be a sheep. And, and they had all these rules and these limitations and these constraints. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's another voice, the voice of the shepherd, and that's the voice you need to hear. See, all this time, it, it was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today. People think that this negative, recriminating, stern, constraining voice, they think that's the voice of God. And Jesus is saying, that's not the voice of God, that's the voice of the thief. My voice is different. And he goes on to, to unpack this because it, it wasn't clear to them. And he kept going. He said, This. He said, Yes, you don't get it. I'm the gate. And those who come in through me will be saved. And, and here's what's so key: they will come and go freely from the fold. The people who follow the shepherd's voice, they're not constrained, limited, trapped in the fold with the fence around them that they never go out of. No, no, he's saying, No, the ones who know my voice, they come and go freely. They have access to pastures that people who don't know my voice will never dream of or see. And in fact, I will lead them to find those good pastures myself. Because ultimately, the thief's purpose, the people who make religion small, the purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. To oppress and control others. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. My purpose is to give them life to the full. My purpose is to give them an abundant life that they would never have dreamed of on their own. See, and this is the lie that people believe, that obedience to God, following the voice of the shepherd, is one more constraint, one more limit on who they were designed to be. But in fact, true freedom comes from obedience to the voice Because God's voice is the thing that leads you to the greater pastures. God's voice is the only way we find this rich and satisfying life, not just a life where we're trying to avoid pain one step at a time, where we're trying to jump from one pleasure to the next and hoping that we can just keep all the negative parts of life at bay. His voice, obedience to his voice, is actually the gateway to true freedom and adventure. How? how does the shepherd do that? Well, he gives us that answer as well. He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. And the way you know that I'm the good shepherd and not the thief is that the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. But, but here's the point. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. This is the point. Normal human beings, normal people, they they experience pain and they run from it. That is a natural, biological, human response. In many cases, it is wise, it is shrewd. But we have a shepherd who, when he experienced pain, didn't turn from it, didn't run from it, didn't reflexively get away from it. He turned and voluntarily chose it. He chose the pain for your sake. And in so doing, he redeemed pain itself. We think that pain is a dead end. We think it's all the good things you want in life. Pain is the end of all that. And instead, Jesus says, no, no, no. Pain is now the way to connect with me. The healthiest person on the path of adventure that I know does happen to be my wife. And she shared with me this lesson that she's learned as she's grown on this path. She says this. She says, pain is just another kind of opportunity. And that's how she's come to grow and understand it because what she'd seen was that it was limiting. Pain was this painful thing that that kept her trapped and stuck, but to instead shift the thinking and to recognize that pain itself is just another kind of opportunity. But not just that. In fact, it's the opportunity to the best thing, the greatest thing. Because pain is what connects us to the shepherd who endured pain for our sakes. Pain is the path to those deeper, greener, more full pastures that the shepherd wants to lead us out into. Pain is a promise that we are not alone because he endured the pain first. This is the power of the good shepherd. This is the life, the adventurous life that our shepherd offers to us. But there's one more point I think needs to be made. And I'm making it because Jesus went there, and it doesn't necessarily seem like it matches the thrust of, of this passage or the sermon, but, but he went there, and so we're going to go there too. In the midst of this talk about being the good shepherd and the good life, he makes this little sidebar. He says, oh, by the way, you need to know, I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. They don't look like you. They don't act like you. They are in a different sheepfold. But I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. And every other time that I've read this verse, what I've assumed is that he would make those sheep look like and match the sheep that are already in the sheepfold, and that's how he would make them one flock. But that's not actually what he's saying. He's saying they're one flock because they also follow the good shepherd's voice. See, he's not saying that to be in the flock of God that we need to be the same as the other sheep. He's just saying that we need to listen to the same voice. And then we can still be different. We can be unique compared to the other people that are in the flock with us. And if you want to know how radical and horrifying that sounded to them, the other sheep Jesus was talking about were the sheep that didn't circumcise their baby boys after the eighth day. The sheep that didn't worship God on Saturday like you were supposed to. The sheep who actually ate meat that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. These were horrifying, disgusting, terrible things. You could never be in a flock with those sheep. And yet Jesus said, no, no, no. They're going to keep doing those things. But they're still in my flock because they follow my voice. The sheep don't have to be the same to follow the same voice of the shepherd. And so now here today, we don't necessarily care about those things. We don't care about circumcision or or worshiping on a Saturday, but we care about a lot of things. And maybe we don't need to. Maybe it's okay that my marriage looks different from your marriage because we are different sheep, but we're still following the same voice. Maybe it's okay that we have different worship styles or that we vote different ways or that we have different orientations or we have different ideals that we're heading towards in our Christian journey as long as we are sincerely, honestly, thoughtfully trying to listen and discern the voice of our good shepherd. And whether you've identified with any one of the nine paths in this series or not, maybe you've seen a glimpse of how we need all of them. We need people to be following the voice of their shepherd, representing all those different things so that the body of Christ can truly live out the fullness of the image of God. We need people who are loyal, who serve, who have integrity, who accomplish things, who strive for justice and strength. We need all of them. Because together, together and only together, do we start to approximate and realize the image of Christ that he gave us. You see, ultimately... The voice of your shepherd isn't trying to take away your adventure. He isn't trying to cut away all of the gross parts of you. He's trying to give you the good parts back. And so can you trust him? Trust him that he's leading you somewhere greater and better than you would have ever dreamed on your own. Can you trust him that even the pain that lies ahead of you on the journey has been redeemed and it's leading you to something deeper and better? Can you trust him that even that sheep that doesn't look anything like you might also be following that same shepherd, but just taking a different path to get to him? And if we can, the image of Christ is in this place and we will truly live full, satisfying abundant, rich lives in all our uniquenesses and differences. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I give you thanks that you are bigger, so much bigger than anything we limited human beings could ever imagine. And that far from being the God who limits us, you are the one who expands us past the limitations of sin and our own frailty. And so Lord, I ask that your voice would be clear and strong for each and every person here this morning. That you would speak so clearly to us the next steps that you would have each individual person take towards that green pasture that you have waiting for them. And Lord, I lift up to you all of our lives and ask you to make of them a greater adventure than any we would dream of for ourselves. And help us to trust in you that this journey is for our good and our benefit for this entire body of believers as well. We pray in your holy name, amen.